All right, Jesse, last week set new records for crazy exes. What's happening this time? On Valentine's Day, 2007, stay-at-home dad Stephen Grant reports that his hardworking wife, Tara, has been missing for five full days. He claims she walked out on the family after an argument. But when authorities uncover Stephen's affair with their teenage au pair, they begin to view him in a suspicious light. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about cheating partners, affairs of agony, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please, please, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and pretty please review to help new people discover our show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have done any of those things already, we adore you. Also, real quick, can we talk about the fact that this is episode 50? Ah, it's so crazy. I can't believe it's been almost a year of love murder. Mm-hmm. This is a really good case for number 50, I've got to say. Okay. We're going to go on a ride. Remember number 50 forever, just like you remember number three and number 12 and number 17. (laughs) Yes. I will definitely remember number 50 forever. Also, this case is coming to us on request by Jennifer C., who recommended it to us on Instagram way back in October of last year. So thank you, Jennifer. This is a great case. I know it's kind of a local case for her. Also, you guys... If you have requested something and I haven't done it, either I'm probably going to get around to it, I'm trying to find the right book to do it, or we've also had an insane year, obviously, with the pregnancy and the babies, and now we both have newly turned three-month-old. So if I ever do a case and you recommended it and I don't give you a shout-out, please forgive me, message me, and I'll give you a shout-out next time. I'll send you a sticker to make up for it. And if there's a case that you really want to hear and you already messaged me, but I haven't done it yet re-message me. Be like, hey, I really want to hear this case. Also love it when you guys attach books. Leah on Instagram, she's really good about sending me books that go with stories. So I have some of those flagged, Leah. Saves you time, huh? It definitely saves me time. It's great to have a resource already there. Especially I know like Leah sends me the audibles, which is great because I do all my research uh, walking around with a baby strapped to my chest, (laughs) 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 which is like really, really funny because people are like, oh, that's so sweet. You're hiking with your baby. And in my ears, it's like, and then he took a knife and stabbed her 57 times. I'm glad that you're the only one hearing that. Right? I know. I have to like pause. (laughs) Like, yep, yep. He's three months old. (laughs) I am not listening to violent murder in my ear holes right now. So that is a long aside, but just want to say we we love the requests. I love them. I love it when you guys send books too. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for this case. And the book that I used is called Blood in the Snow by Tom Henderson. And it was my first Tom Henderson and I really liked him. I think we'll do him again. He has a cheeky way about writing and he gets really personal with the cases, which I personally love. All right. Verena Derkis, a 19-year-old German au pair for an upper middle-class family in Washington Township, Michigan, just outside of Detroit, is in trouble. 
She's out dancing with her girlfriends, but throughout the night, the father of the family she works for, a man named Stephen Grant, is texting her flirtatiously. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. She knows she shouldn't be interested, but she's intrigued. At 37 years old, Stephen is still in great shape, tall and handsome, with a honed body of a long-distance runner. Marina feels badly for Stephen, who is left alone all week as his high-powered executive wife climbs the corporate ladder, oh, only returning <laughs> so sad for him. So sad. <laughs> You're so sad. Only, so sad to be him. Only returning from her assignment in Puerto Rico on the weekends. Throughout the long, lonely weeks, Verena and Stephen have forged a closeness, an intimacy, and she knows she's crossing a line. It's why she's trying to hide their texts from her curious friends. And it's also why she has attempted feebly to resist Stephen's come-ons and suggestive jokes. She likes the attention and the teasing. She even likes Stephen. She even likes the oral sex he has given her, though <gasps> she refuses to let him go further into sexual intercourse. Just oral. Just oral. We're going to have a Bill Clinton line here where oral sex isn't sex, apparently. Besides, he has implied that he's leaving Tara, that the marriage is just for the kids, the ones that she cares for every day, six-year-old Lindsay and four-year-old Ian, that they really live separate lives. She believes Stephen. They'll have plenty of time for sex later. On the night of Friday, February 9th, 2007, she giggles when she sees his last text, you owe me a kiss. At 11.30 p.m., she walks in the door, wondering how she will give him that kiss now that his wife Tara should be home from her travels. Musing, she enters the side door and is confronted by the sound of someone running loudly down the stairs. What the fuck are you still doing here? Go, just go, Stephen screams. Verena bristles, shocked. When Stephen realizes it's Verena, he apologizes and starts crying. Tara got home and the two had a terrible fight about her constant travel. She then called somebody to come pick her up and she left. Verena consoles him. She goes into her bedroom to change and finds a note on her bed that again reads, you owe me a kiss. Verena goes to Stephen, who is now naked in his own bed, and consoles him all night long, only creeping out in the wee dimly lit hours of the early morning. She's confused as to what will happen when Tara comes home, but Tara doesn't come home. Not that night, nor the next. It would take five days before Stephen would report his wife missing, thus kicking off a sordid tale of lust, anger, fear, murder, a harrowing chase, as well as a truly gut-churning jailhouse affair. Whoa, this is like a case of CPS gone real wrong. Why CPS? Like Child Protective Services? No, Close Proximity Syndrome. Oh, <laughs> I was like, which CPS? Yes, this is absolutely that. And a creepy dude. I mean, she's 19. He should know better. He's clearly preying on her. Yeah, 20 years her senior and she works yeah, for you. Yeah, just about. And she's stuck like with him in a foreign country, you know, yeah. seeing him yeah. day in, day out. So since Tara's missing, let's talk about Tara to start. Tara Lynn Distramp was born on June 28, 1972 in a little town in the Upper Peninsula, the UP of Michigan. She lived on a 28-acre farm with her blue-collar parents, Dusty and Mary, and her 20-months younger sister, Alicia. Alicia and Tara were super-duper close and would remain best friends for the rest of their lives. Both girls were hardworking and bright. They chopped and stacked wood in the freezing cold Michigan winters, did farm chores, raised livestock, and they even went duck hunting. 
So they're really outdoorsy and they're not necessarily like tomboyish. They're just very well-rounded and they're good workers and they do what's needed of them on the farm, you know? Tara was especially intelligent and vivacious, described as a happy girl with a huge and inviting smile. She was only ever in trouble for chatting during class and distracting the other students, which I can relate to. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like there's a few similarities right now. Yep, exactly. Also, she was in 4-H. I was in 4-H from first grade until I graduated high school. So funny. Yeah. So I love Tara. I feel like a real kinship with her. She was actually a championship BB shooter with the 4-H club as well as first clarinet in the school band and varsity level at cheerleading basketball and track. Whoa. I know. Is there anything she can't do, right? That's wild. Mm-hmm. A consummate overachiever. She graduated fourth in her class and after a very brief tenure at community college, transferred to Michigan State University, where she would ultimately graduate with a degree in business administration and garner a charming new bow. <laughs> Yep, it was at MSU that Tara met Stephen Grant, a notorious womanizer and partier who would later change her life forever. They met at a party in 1993 where Stephen told her, yeah, 1993. I love like a kind of vintage case, you know? Yep, yep. So they met at a vintage party in 1993 (laughs) where Stephen told her he was a recent MSU graduate who is now venturing into politics, working as an aide in Lansing for State Senator Jack Faxon. The job was to last through the 1994 elections and then hopefully become something more permanent. Tara was struck by Stephen's good looks and confidence, but despite a couple dates, the two remained largely platonic. That is, until Tara's grandmother died in August 1994, and Stephen surprised Tara by attending the funeral that was several hours away. Yeah, she was really touched by the fact that, you know, they only knew each other kind of as like loose friends and she was close to her grandmother and it really affected her death so that, you know, this guy that was interested in her drove hours to be there on a really hard day for her. You know, it is touching. Absolutely. So after that, she began to see him in a different light. Within only a couple of months, the two moved in together. Physically, they made a really good-looking pair because they're both very fit and trim. They're both extremely athletic. Tara was 5'6 and only about like 115 pounds-ish her whole life, like before and after kids. She had this beautiful, big, massive, dark, curly hair. Like, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, she really like teased it up. Later, it's like more loose curls, but gorgeous either way. And Steven was this six-foot, guy who kept in really, really good shape, always, like Iron Man type body. And he had like pronounced green eyes. I don't particularly like his eyes, but they are definitely a defining factor. You guys will see later. We'll put some pictures up. Wait, why? (laughs) We'll get into it later. I love that it's like an actual topic to talk about later. It has its own. His creepy eyes. Yeah. After a permanent job with the senator failed to materialize and Tara graduated, the couple moved to Detroit where Stephen went to work at his father's machine shop and Tara eventually got a temp position at Washington Group, a huge global engineering and construction company. So it started off as a different company, but then Washington Group bought her company and she ultimately ended up working for them. Determined to make the position permanent, Tara outworked and outcharmed all of the competition and rose up the ranks quickly. 
Despite taking some time off to welcome her two beloved children, Lindsay in 2000 and little Ian in 2002, she managed to become a systems manager and was entered into a training program to be groomed for executive roles. By 2006, she was making $168,000 a year. Wow. Yeah, it's even more impressive because that's like $217,000 in 2021. Wow, that's wild. That's so impressive. It's really impressive. She was bringing home that bacon. Meanwhile, Grant's career never really took off. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problem is. Yeah, exactly. That same year, like he was basically a stay-at-home dad, but he kind of worked part-time at his dad's machine shop still. So that year he only brought in $18,000, which wasn't even <laughs> as much as Tara's end-of-the-year bonus, which was 28000 And I'm also like all for men being stay-at-home dads. I think that's I was just awesome. going to say, I was just going to yeah. say that's amazing, but it's his ego being crushed by her swallowing him. You know what I mean? Because there's also nothing wrong with with doing what you love and not even pulling in anything or pulling in a really small amount. There's nothing wrong with that either. But it's the fact that he couldn't handle it. Yeah, that's that's like me. <laughs> doing what I love, making no money over here. <laughs> Guys, I swear we're going to get ads someday. And for now, enjoy the, the free content. <laughs> yeah, so I am not hating on that at all. Unfortunately, though, you're 100% correct that he had a big ego about this situation. He also wasn't exactly a stay-at-home dad because they had a full-time live-in au pair. That she paid for. That she paid for, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I'm still saying, like, also people who are stay-at-home parents deserve help for sure. Again, raises my hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the fact is, is that he really like had a chip on his shoulder about this. Of course. There was no humility in it. He was just kind of jealous and resentful of her. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, exactly. Because then there's it's never any celebration of her and her success. No, she has to downplay herself yep. to make herself comfortable in the marriage or else yep. he makes it a living hell for her, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's so shitty. And that's so sad, you know? And despite her work absences, or absences for work, rather, Tara was a highly committed and involved mother. Her weekends revolved around the kids' activities and spending quality time with them. So it made it extremely perplexing when Tara seemingly walked out of her family's life without even calling the children to say goodbye. Yeah, because how old are they when this happens? They're four and six. Yeah. You don't, you don't leave your children like that and just say bye. It was also really unlike her not to report to work Monday morning. Tara was responsible and reliable. A no-show, no-call was not her style. Yeah, this is not looking good. No. So after calling her boss, her parents, and her sister, Stephen finally reported Tara missing five days after their fight on Valentine's Day 2007 immediately the cops don't like Steven. Because of his eyes? <laughs> he has, well, yeah, he has really pronounced like buggy out eyes. He's sketchy looking. But he also, at this time, when he reports her missing, he has scratches on his nose and his hand. What? Yeah, which he claims he got working in his dad's shop. Of course, they're thinking defense wounds. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, naturally. He's jittery. He didn't report his wife missing for five whole days. <laughs> These are all not looking good. What else? Yeah. What else yeah. do you need? Well, also, he's like not just telling them 
hey, my wife's gone. This is what happened. He like has a little notebook that he's consulting being like, and then I called this person at this time. And then I did this. And he's like, has like all of his whereabouts in this notebook. And he's like reading off the notebook rather than just telling them what happened. Weird. Yeah. So they're, they're like, this is sketchy. So this is what his story is. According to the police who Tom Henderson reported the police report here. And he read this from his murder moleskin. Yes. Miss Murder Moleskin. I like that. We're going to have to trademark that Murder Moleskin. Do a development deal with Moleskin about that. <laughs> he said his wife had been late getting home the night of February 9th, delayed by a big East Coast snowstorm, that he'd had a couple of beers while he waited for her, that they'd argued over the phone about her change in plans. She wanted to go back to Puerto Rico on Sunday instead of Monday. They had resumed the fight when she got home. After some yelling back and forth for 20 minutes, she had made a call on her cell, told someone to come pick her up, and said she'd be out in a minute. Grant didn't know for sure, though he thought it was the limo service she frequently used to get to the airport. The last thing she said to him on her way out the garage door was, don't forget to get her car, a 2002 Isuzu Trooper, into the dealership Monday to get a dent fixed. Oh, I love those. The, the Isuzu Troopers? Do they look like a Jeep kind they of? They like, yeah, like Land Rovery. Yes. Oh, I like those too. Yeah. Yeah. So he said he mentions that they have an au pair and that she got home 10 minutes after Tara left. And by home, he means into his bed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I feel bad for this poor young girl who gets embroiled in this. Uh, yeah. Ugh. He claims he didn't report Tara missing until five days later because her boss asked him not to, something her boss, a guy named Lou Trundale, would later deny. He called Tara's mom and sister who said they hadn't heard from her, but Stephen speculated that they could be lying to him to cover up the fact that Tara was having an affair. Whoa. Yep. In fact, Stephen went on, Tara might have been having an affair with Lou Trundale, her boss. I think I'm saying his name weird, but it's something like Trundale. So he's now like trying to say maybe she's having an affair. Maybe she's having an affair with her boss. I don't know. Her boss didn't want her to be even reported missing. So maybe look at that guy. He said that they'd been in couples counseling to no avail, that Tara preferred to confide in Lou rather than Stephen, her apparently long-suffering husband. Oh, my God. You know what else, Steven said? Tara's company was involved in chemical weapons. Maybe she'd been exposed to nerve gas. Maybe she'd even been kidnapped by terrorists. You have got to be kidding me. He's saying this? Yes. The recording officer is like, oh, my God, this guy is fucking hilarious. This guy's a real joker over here. He's like, it's getting weirder by the second. And he's like, he is guilty af. Like, he's just, like, writing it down and being like, sure, yeah, maybe it's that, dude. And the whole time he's just writing G-U-I-L-T-Y-A-F-F-F-F. <laughs> Drawing, like, a little hangman. <laughs> Picture of him behind bars with his buggy-out eyes. Yeah, maybe yeah. He's po she's poisoned, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely nerve gas and terrorists. <laughs> So when Stephen kept bringing up the au pair, the officer asked if they were having a relationship to which Grant replied, she'll never tell, giving the officer a guy-to-guy -guy smirk. Ew. Ew. Pretty effing weird thing to say when you're reporting your wife missing. Oh, man. This guy just is not smart. No, he is a dumb cookie. So 
Sergeants Brian Kozlowski, who goes by Kaz, and Sergeant Pam McLean start investigating the disappearance. Her work security officer reports that no activity has happened on Tara's emails, her cell phone, or her company credit card past February 9th. And Stephen also reports that there's no action on their joint banking accounts. So she, if she left of her own accord, why isn't she emailing anyone, texting email? How is she getting around in the world without spending money, you know? Her money. Her money, yep. So Cos and McLean go out to interview Stephen and Verena at the house, and they're both a little squirrely. Upon the first interview, they both believe that Stephen killed her, but they have no body and no evidence. So they ask him to come in and take a polygraph, you know, like they're like, just to eliminate you as a suspect, you know, not because we think you're guilty or anything. And he agrees. But the next day before he's supposed to come in, they get a fax from his newly appointed defense attorney. Stephen will not be coming in. And all communication is now to go through his attorney, a man named David Grimm. A fax. Yes, a fax. I mean, we're hey, we're still actually we're in 2007 now. That's so funny. That's yeah, weird. It was a yeah. fax. That's yeah. weird. <laughs> so the police are tailing him at this point, and they eventually pick him up for turning without signaling. Stop. And, yeah, that's what he gets busted for. And they arrest him for unpaid tickets for moving violations, as well as driving with a suspended license. Oh, no. It gets worse yeah. and worse. Yeah, apparently he it's exactly that. He's had so many speeding tickets and only paid a handful of them that his license has been suspended several times. I also think I had one boyfriend back when I was like 24, 25 who had a ton of speeding tickets, like constantly, like was always, always getting pulled over, was always speeding, never learned his lesson. And he was also a habitual cheater. And I feel like there's like, It'll come up later, and Tom Henderson actually kind of, like, makes this correlation, too, that some people just don't think the rules apply to them. Yeah. And they're the ones who are constantly like, hey, if someone's not looking, I can speed. I can. And I'm not talking, like, we all go, you know, push it up to 80 occasionally on the highway. We all maybe go a 50 and a 45. It happens. But to be, like, pulled over that many times and keep doing it and keep thinking you're going to somehow get away with it this time. And then just not like doing any of the consequences for it. Yeah, so not then, paying your yeah. your mhm or going to yeah, the classes. That, that particular anything. ex got booted in front of my building once. <laughs> and I had to pay to get his boot taken off. Oh, I made so many poor dating choices in my mid 20s. I think everyone does. I think it's a rite of passage. Yeah. If you're listening and you're in your 20s, you'll get through this. You will. You'll come out the other side. It might take you until 37 to have a baby, but that's just fine. And you might meet someone and marry them four months later, or you might marry someone who you met 15 years prior. <laughs> you might. Who knows? The world is crazy. But either way, you're going to end up happy. You just got to get through this. Keep going. <laughs> so this is when he gets this like now iconic mugshot of him with these like buggy out eyes looking like a deer in a headlights. Do you see his ugly buggy out eyes? Can you see that? Yeah. I don't like him. No. You get a, I can't like believe he's real... on the cover of the book. Like you had to look at that every time you picked it up. <laughs> yeah. It's like a real visceral like, ooh, I don't like him. It's like the, the Steve Carell meme. Nope. Don't like that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like my feeling. Nope. 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 Yeah. So he's a creep. 
So obviously his attorney bails him out for this. So they didn't get anything out of him during this phase, unfortunately. Next, the cops subpoena the Grant's cell phone records. First of all, there's no call to anyone at all the time Stephen said she received one on her way out the door or she made one. There's nothing. So like she definitely didn't get or make a phone call at that point. Okay. Second, there's no calls whatsoever, you know, since she got home that night. Her last phone call was calling Stephen on her way home from the airport. Furthermore, the pattern of calls between Tara and Steven on the day she would go missing indicate that the two were fighting. It's just, it's kind of like this crazy back and forth, like where one person like seems to hang up on one of the people, then the other person calls them back and then they're sending each other the voicemail. Like it's so clear by the pattern that something was going on, you know? Okay. They also recovered voicemails that Steven had left for Tara. So he left voicemails for her after she went missing, in quotations. He left five in the wee hours of Saturday, the night she had gone missing, and then a couple on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Strangely, he hadn't left any on Wednesday, which is the day he actually reported her missing, which the cops thought was strange because you'd think he'd say, hey, I haven't heard from you. I'm involving the police at this point, you know? Yeah. And after that, he just doesn't call her anymore. It's like after he goes to the police station, he's like, well, I did my part. I reported her missing, and he just stops trying to call her. Yeah, because he knows she's not alive anymore. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So Alicia, Tara's sister, had spoken to the police by now, and she revealed that the Grant marriage was far from perfect. (laughs) Something we already know. (laughs) She depicted Stephen as controlling and condescending, even cruel and emotionally abusive. Ooh. Yeah, she said that no one in her family liked Stephen and that she and her husband refused to do family vacations with the Grants because he was so insufferable. Wow. It just sucks, too, because the girls were truly best friends. They adored each other. The sisters were super duper close and they couldn't do things together because Stephen was so, so terrible. Like Alicia's husband, Eric, describes him like, screaming and forcibly trying to get their 18-month-old baby to, like, lay down in his crib. And the baby was, like, losing its mind, of course, because somebody was being a madman and, like, forcing him to lay down. And Eric was like, get the hell out of my kid's room. Get the hell out of my life. Like, it was just so uncomfortable that they couldn't spend time together as two families. It wasn't his kid. It was his... It was his nephew, yeah. Whoa. Not okay. Huge overstepped boundary. He said, after that, I never let that man alone with my children, obviously. No. Also, it's such a bummer when you find out that you, like, can't vacation with people. It's just terrible. I mean, it's it's so sad, too. I mean, I would hate it if my brother married somebody that I couldn't stand or was, like, actually a truly terrible person, you know? It's devastating. And she was really devastated, too. And the day she went missing, actually – Tara had called her from the airport and was trying to talk to her about doing a like a family vacation together. And Alicia was like, I don't know how to tell you. I really don't want to be around your husband. But so we're not going to do that, you know? Did the author cover anything about like what? I mean, I guess he came to the funeral, but is there any other redeeming qualities with this guy? Not really. Okay. I mean, he's good looking. Like, I don't like his face, but like everyone describes him as like in good shape, as like very athletic. There seemed to be something charming about him because people seem to really like him, or at least some women did, you know? Until he yelled at their children. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that 
it's just one of those situations where I'm sure he started off promising. And then as his life went on and, you know, his wife was getting really successful and he was kind of stuck, he looked for other external types of validation, yeah. which was like working out, being in shape, hitting on women, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So by now the media was picking up on the case because Tara's really beautiful, you know, and like she's exactly like the type of case that the media loves, like a beautiful white mother. Successful. Successful who disappears. It's exactly the type of case that gets huge media coverage. Yeah. So she was already, well, she's only missing featured on shows like America's Most Wanted, Inside Edition, Nancy Grace, Dateline, The Today Show, Good Morning America. I mean, this case was national right away almost. I bet Nancy Grace ate it up. I bet she did too. You gotta love a Nancy Grace. She has something else. (laughs) Are y'all out looking at the husband? (laughs) Spot on. So Cos and McLean decide to take another pass at interviewing the au pair, Verena, and she sticks to her story, but she seems super duper agitated and evasive. She won't look at the detectives in the eyes when she's answering their questions. Yikes. Yeah. And, and it's not because she has anything to do with the murder or disappearance. She just knows that she's been in the the husband, you know? Yeah. So she hasn't admitted that. Not yet. Okay. Um, there's also the matter of how many au pairs that grants have gone through. They've gone through seven in five years. That is a lot. That's a really high turnover rate. It is. And also, Tara would have been fine with like daycare or a traditional nanny service. Steven was the one who pushed for young au pairs. Ew. Creepy. If my husband was like, no, 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 I want to do only teenage au pairs, I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, you are getting a 70-year-old woman who's the size of a Mack truck. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're getting like mean old granny over here. That's who's going to be taking care of our children. Also, there's not enough like dude au pairs. I don't know if there's like a phrase for that, but. A manny. More people need to have mannies. Yeah. My brother watches our kids part-time, so I got a manny. I got yeah. a, I got an uncle Manny. <laughs> a relative too. Manny. That's the safest yeah, he's, route. <laughs> he's fantastic. He's great with Alden. Yeah. So the woman who runs the au pair agency is concerned, of course, and she decides to send Verena back home to Germany. She also emails all of the Grant's former au pairs and tells them, like, hey, something funky is going on. Tara's missing. If anything was weird going on, can you message the police or give them a call? Wow. Smart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one woman, a young Ukrainian named Victoria, calls and tells the police that Grant was really, really creepy with her. Wait, you said Grant? Yeah, his last name's Grant. Stephen Grant. So sorry, I was just going back and forth between his (laughs) first name and his last name. But it's funny because his last name is a first name too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah, Stephen Grant is super duper creepy with her. He was just like overly involved in her personal life. Like he was always trying to like be like, are you seeing a boy? What are you going to do with him? Like, where are you going? Like he's trying to suss her out with him. Yeah. And he was like trying to talk about her personal life or sexual life all the time. And she also had this really uncanny feeling that he was watching her when she was in the house, especially when she was in her bedroom alone. Stop. Did he have a camera? He had something. He had something. 
We'll get into like that a later. nanny cam in the teddy bear. <laughs> so creepy. Yeah, we'll circle back to that one later. So when Vrena gets back to Germany, they start monitoring her and Steven's calls and emails, and it's pretty darn evident that the two are having an affair. There are also emails leading up to Tara's disappearance between Steven and an ex-girlfriend that are extremely flirtatious and damning in nature, suggesting that Tara was cheating, which she 100% was not. She was not cheating. She was not having an affair at all. And illustrating his disregard for their marriage. So here's an excerpt from the messages he sent to his ex, who was a nursing student. And this is from Blood in the Snow by Tom Henderson. Grant sends her an email telling her he has suspicions that Tara is having an affair with somebody he calls the geezer. And then he writes, I hope you keep at that nursing thing. You never know when I might need a sponge bath. If you want to practice, let me know. A sponge bath? That's supposed to be sexy? Are you an infant or geriatric? Yeah, in either case, not sexy. No, no. No. There's so many other sexy things you could say to a nurse. Yeah, I I don't know why he went for the sponge bath, but here we are. So Hardy countered, (laughs) (laughs) you're married. You shouldn't talk like that. How would you feel if Tara was talking like that to the old geezer? He says, I was only being helpful with the offer to be a test subject. I was just being supportive, not dirty. I don't care about being married. I never have. It is that no conscience thing. So this is where, again, the parallels between cheating and his driving record come up. Hardy says, you have not changed a bit. Don't you worry about being burned eternally by the devil? Why did you get married in the first place? Seemed like the cool thing to do. The answers in order are no, love, and no. I think you misunderstand, though. I like being married. I just think of marriage vows like speed limits. Sometimes you have to break them, and sometimes you get caught. You just need to keep an eye on the road to avoid detection. And then Tom Henderson wrote in parentheses, and sometimes you get pulled over for warrants and they take your ass to jail. But he didn't get to that part of it, that chapter in his life not lending itself to seduction. Okay, love him. Right? Getting sassy, Tom Henderson. Love him. Hardy asks him if he's on the home or work computer. Grant says that he's at work and then complains about his internet access there. My work computer sucks. It's actually the connection. At this site, I have no high-speed access. I was using one of the neighbor's connections via wireless until their IT guy saw a slowdown in the DL speed and put up a firewall. What a bastard. Oh, you're so cool. (laughs) (laughs) I was just tapping into the neighbor's Wi-Fi. I know. What are you? Are you an internet pirate? Yeah, it's so sexy being an internet pirate who needs a sponge bath. (laughs) Arg. Funny, you are still a little thief. Something's never changed, said Hardy. So what are you going to do about your cheating wife? Also, would you mind changing your email settings so it includes the thread? I sometimes forget what I said. Hey, that rhymed. I'm so freaking bored today. Don't know yet, Grant writes back about the geezer. The problem is she says things in code, and because of that, I don't know what is actually going on. But not wanting her to think him a man of no action, he brags about being able to read Tara's emails because of a guy he knows. Brian is a vice president at a computer company and one of his techs helped out a bit, if you know what I mean. Straight up NSA shit if you get my drift. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, I almost just peed a little. Yeah, actually, he had some software over-the-counter stuff you can buy at CompUSA. 
It just sounded cooler the other way. The software was called Spectre Pro 3.1. Literature for the software bragged that it recorded emails, keystrokes, instant messaging, and chat conversations for AOL, MSN, Yahoo, and other services and all internet domains that had been accessed. It could also take literal snapshots of the computer screen for up to one a second. So he's spying on Tara. What a loser. Mm-hmm. In fact, Grant had caught Tara sending emails to an old boyfriend named Pete. Nothing serious in them. Nothing to prove she was having sex with him or a romantic relationship or anything. Which was what Grant feared and alternately assumed to be true and knew to be impossible. He would send the ex-boyfriend emails pretending to be Tara, trying to get him to say something incriminating to prove his worst case scenario for him. But either nothing was happening or something was happening, but she was too smart for him. Poor Grant trapped in another either or. If you are so bored, I'm still in need of some excitement in my life, he wrote. Wink, wink. Tara flew to London yesterday till Friday night, and I am all alone with no one to play with. I do want to see you naked. Naked women are always good to see, especially if you haven't seen one in a while. (laughs) I cannot with this human being. I know. I feel like also he was probably trying to prove that Tara was cheating if he did want to get divorced so he could get more money in the settlement because he doesn't make any money. So he's going to have to, you know, just survive on alimony. So maybe he's like, if I can set her up to make it look like she's cheating, I can get more money, you know? Such a dirtbag. Such a dirtbag. So despite the fact that Tara was definitely, definitely not seeing anyone else, Stephen was certainly trying to make it look that way, obviously. Yeah, when you, like, are good at your job and pulling in all the cash for your family, you don't really have fucking time to be cheating. That's exactly it. Everybody who knew Tara was like, are you kidding me? She spends every second that she's not at work with her children. Exactly. And vice versa. That's it. That's what she has time for. She doesn't have time to be running around, like, having affairs. Like, obviously, this guy has all the time in the world to seduce everyone he possibly comes across, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah, man. This is, like... What is it? Idle hands do the devil's work. Idle hands do the devil's emailing. (laughs) Gross. So he courted the media. He was like fine doing interviews. And he told them like he was saying stuff like, I don't care who you're with, Tara. I don't care that you left me. Please come home. You know, like trying to make it look like she just left. Like she's out having an affair with somebody. It's like gone girl in that. Yep. And his attorney also made press conferences and stressed that Stephen was not a suspect because there was no crime to be a suspect for. They're really playing off like she just left the family, yo, you know? Yep. The detectives, though, are certain that they have their guy and they're working every angle, including tailing his daily activities and interviewing those that he regularly engaged with. So they're like on his ass. And they find out that despite telling everyone that he was a proud alumnus of MSU, He's actually a dropout. He never graduated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though he brags about it. Uh-huh. Lol. He's also a super duper regular at Buffalo Wild Wings. That is his joint. BW3s. He goes like twice a day to like two different locations. Wow. Yep. Every time he orders. How much like, fried chicken can you have? Well, also, it's so gross. They, like, describe this guy as really healthy and in good shape, and I guess guess he is, but he also, like, starts his day by eating a candy bar and then goes and eats boneless wings with blue cheese and an expensive microbrew beer for, like, every meal. Gross. (laughs) 
Rose. Yeah. Like I, I'll take some uh, BWW, you know, every once in a while. There's nothing wrong with it. But every single day, a couple times a day. Woof. Yeah, that's gross. According to Tom Henderson in the book, Stephen liked to talk to the other regulars over his boneless wings. And what he liked to talk about the most was his sexy young au pairs. So this came from regulars at the Buffalo Wild Wings talking to the police. And it's recorded in Tom Henderson's book. For those who knew he was married, it might have struck them as unseemly the relish with which he showed photos of the au pairs that he had taken on his cell phone, comments he made about how hot they were or how hot they in turn thought him. They were all young and pretty. He picked them out personally, he bragged, and to hear him tell it, they were all enamored of him. He liked to tell the story of how one time one of them saw him outside the house and caught his eye and then did a striptease in her bedroom window for him. Though, when he found out another of the au pairs was screwing some young American, he canned her ass. He sent her packing. He'd show their pictures and brag them up, but he also wouldn't think anything either of calling the current au pair up on his cell and screaming at her over some imagined slight or chore she botched. He would do this, like, at the bar in front of other people. Wow. Yep. So it certainly came to no surprise to the regulars when they read in the papers or heard on the radio that Grant had been zinging salacious emails to an ex-girlfriend. Like, they already knew he wasn't faithful to his wife, you know? Yeah. His missing wife. (laughs) Yes. Then along came Verena. He talked more about her than he had the others. He took a lot of pictures of her, usually smiling that smile of hers at him, easy to call it sexy, and showed the pictures to everyone. About mid-January, folks noticed him talking about her even more, showing more photos of her. Couldn't keep quiet about her. It got to be annoying. He talked to Verena a lot on the phone, but he never raised his voice to her. Apparently, she was good at chores. Lest anyone thought Grant was bullshitting about how attractive he was to Verena, he'd flash around his cell phone, letting people read her text messages to him. They were open to interpretation, nothing totally X-rated, but they were clearly flirtatious, meant to be come-ons, hinting at pleasures to be had. So the regulars thought, like, "Mm, I guess this teenager has a hot for a boss, you know? (sighs) So they know he's a creep. They know in their guts he did this, but they haven't got enough to obtain a search warrant for the Grant household. So they're just operating on gut feelings at this point. And Sheriff Hackle had a really strong gut feeling about Stony Creek. Stony Creek Metro Park is this massive park that abutted the Grant's property, a place both Stephen and Tara ran and biked at religiously. And while Stephen's courting the media, he randomly like talks about the sheriff and how he saw the sheriff riding his bike in the park without a helmet, which was against the law. And so he's like, I don't know, this guy can't even follow his own rules, you know, and like made some dig at the sheriff while he's being investigated for his wife's disappearance. And for some reason that like stuck in Sheriff Hackle's head, like, hmm, he's like making a point to talk about me in this park. And like, I know he's trying to like make it look like I'm a hypocrite, but also why is he talking about this park? And also they're really close. Like they're right on the edge of this park, their property. So maybe he dumped the body there. So he ordered a massive search of it. And he did a press conference being like, we're going to be combing through Stony Creek to look for Tara. However, the search comes up with absolutely nothing. I feel like it might be too close to home, but this guy sounds like a real rock. 
Yeah. Yeah. He's not that smart. So it's entirely possible. And it just, it just sucked because the sheriff was like, we have, we're going on nothing here. I'm doing the best I can. And I have this weird gut feeling, but it didn't pan out. So he tells everyone like, because now the reporters are very involved in this. So they're like, what's happening with Tara? He's like, Hey, we, we didn't find anything. However, I don't necessarily think that that's because it's not there. This park is huge. There's just lots of places to search. If you are in this vicinity and you see anything, any small little tidbit that seems off to you, call it, report it, bring it to us, like whatever, like actually just call us so we can come check it out. You know, I I just, I can't shake this feeling. Luckily, Sheila Warner, a 34-year-old dental hygienist who loves nature and hates litter bugs, was picking up trash in the Stony Creek area when she spotted and picked up a large gallon-sized Ziploc bag that was jammed between a couple of trees. The contents were hella suspect. It had what looked like blood pooled at the bottom, plastic bags, gloves, and metal shavings in it. Metal shavings? Yeah, so she turned this into the police and they test it and bada bing, bada boom, it's human blood, baby. So the fact that it has been found near the Grant's home and has metal shavings similar to those that would be found at a machine shop. Oh my God. And of course, you know, that his wife is missing. They In a Ziploc? In a Ziploc bag. So- They finally now have probable cause to search Grant's dad's shop and the Grant home. So while they're working behind the scenes to obtain these warrants, Stephen is doing more of these terrible interviews. He's trying to make himself look good and Tara look bad. And it's just so cringeworthy. He did an in-depth interview with George Hunter, who's a reporter for the Detroit News. And it was disgusting. A story on the interview would be a big part of a package of stories the news would run under the headline, I was the perfect mom, not Tara. Holy shit. The audacity. So yeah, it goes on. No, Grant said, Tara wasn't the perfect mother the media and her family were portraying. She was far from perfect, both with the kids and with him. She was a bad mother for the kids and a worse wife with him. And the the dude, the reporter's writing this? The reporter's like, holy shit, this guy is giving me gold because they are going to eat this up, you know? Wow. In fact, said Grant, the last words Tara had said to him before she left the house the night before, the night she disappeared, were, don't forget to take my truck in Monday. That really took the wind out of my sails. She was telling me that's all I was. It was like, you be the valet and take my car in. (laughs) Which also, she didn't even say. So he's creating this scenario that he's then complaining about her with. Yep. He's complaining about the scenario he created in his head. Yep. Grant told Hunter he resented the time Tara spent away from the family. They often, he said, argued over who was the boss in the family, who'd run the household. She's been traveling all around the world for four years. It had become difficult, but I learned to live with it, he said. She'd changed, he said. Changed in personality, changed in looks. That loose curled hair she had now the look that was made so famous by the photos the newspapers kept running and the TV news kept airing, that one, Grant didn't like it. It seemed to symbolize how she changed. Tara looked completely different when we met. She was beautiful, said Grant. It's hard to explain. She just looked a lot different. She had the big hair. So he's just like bashing her left and right. 
I mean, who knows? Like that could have been the – she could have asked him to make sure that he takes a car and then that could have been what made him snap. I mean, it's his responsibility. She travels for work five out of seven days a week. Who's going to – who else is going to bring the car in? I know. I would do that for Nathaniel because he has a full-time job. Any sane partner, no matter what your work schedule is like, if one person can't do something and you ask the other person who you're supposed to be in a partnership and in love with, to do a favor for you, it should be okay. Yeah, it shouldn't like rub you the wrong way and make you feel like the valet. And if it does, go to couples counseling, have a conversation. Or go to therapy on your own if you feel like you want to chop someone up with a fucking table saw. Yeah, for real, for real. So Grant also disputed Alicia's contention to the media that her sister was a good mother who often flew home to attend important school events. That's not true, said Grant. I don't recall one time when she did that. She was there on weekends, but it wasn't out of the ordinary for her to come in, kiss the babies, and then leave again. Grant said he didn't think Tara had been unfaithful, but he had reason for doubt. Over the last year, he told this reporter this, she had been texting uh, one of her old bosses back and forth like they were 14-year-old girls. They'd be texting and Tara would be giggling. I was a better mom than Tara was. There's no other way to put it, he said. I was the mom in the house. She was gone all the time. If the kids needed someone to take them to swimming or school or soccer practice, I took them. It wasn't the pair. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't him. It's like the biggest hand job <laughs> motion to ever. Be honest, as weird as it sounds for me to say this, I was the perfect mom, not Tara. Wow. Wow. Also, what a he deserves a trophy thing. for that. Oh. But also so stupid. This is so stupid to do this. So stupid. Well, we're about to find out exactly how stupid he is. Because (laughs) with the warrants obtained, the police kick off two searches on March 2nd, 2007, and it gets wild. First of all, the media gets wind of the search. So there are reporters swarming the Grant household like immediately. And I'm talking they're on foot. There's helicopters up like just circling the house for the local news reports. There's also a crazy snowstorm going down. So it's it's like a madhouse already. So the cops show up at the Grant's house and Stephen is totally caught off guard. So they tell him that he has to stay out of the way, but he can't leave. At this point, he asks if he can walk their dog, Bentley, a golden retriever, which is like such a basic bitch name and dog. <laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, sure. Just give us your driver's license just in case. So we don't want you driving away. It's like maybe like your cell phone and keys would have been better. <laughs> yeah. Than your driver's license. Obviously, he has a suspended license and he's been driving anyway. He doesn't care whether he has his driver's license or not. Oh, my God. So then he just walks off with the dog into the snowstorm. And no one thinks twice about this. No one like checks to see where he's going or what's going on. They just didn't assume he was going to be leaving. So two hours after that, some of the cops are kind of just chatting and cause suggests that they move the bullshitting into the garage because some people are like the techs are doing all the searching, but the, you know, police and the detectives also have to be on scene. So they're in the garage and he notices a Rubbermaid container labeled boys clothes. So he pops the top and he finds that there's something in there that's wrapped in a garbage bag. So he's thinking, hmm, maybe it's like dog food. They have a dog. So he rips a small hole and there's another garbage bag. And then he does it again and there's another. So it's like a Russian nesting doll situation, but with garbage bags. 
So he rips through the fourth bag and he sees like a little flash of red and plastic. So he sticks his hand in and it's wet and very icky. So he rips his hand out and his fingertips are covered with blood. Jesse, he's keeping her body in the garage. In the garage. So Kaz, like literally, he reports this to Tom Henderson. He said, I literally said, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? And another officer shines a flashlight into the bin and it's just filled with blood. So they get a tech to come over and cut open the bags. And I shit you not, Andrea, they find a human freaking torso. What? The fuck? A torso. It's Tara's. I mean, this is so insane because usually when we talk about these searches, like if they find like a microscopic fleck of blood, they're like, yes, score. Yeah. And this guy has her torso just in his garage. He's psychotic. Psychotic. So yeah. And, and the book- really stupid. Oh, the stupidest. In the book, Tom Henderson calls this hitting the murder detective lotto. I mean, when do you get a, like, just body parts? Wow. Yeah. So at this point, of course, they're like, um, okay, so where did the murderer go? Anybody got eyes on Stephen? Where is he? So where did Stephen go? Buckle up because we are about to go on a ride with Mr. Grant here. So... Stephen walked the dog for about a mile and then he called a friend to pick him up and the dog. He asked the friend to borrow his car and the friend, this is again, going against your gut instinct. The friend was like, did not think that he killed Tara at all, but he was like, okay, you're like kind of on the run. Your wife's missing. You want to borrow my car? And against his better judgment, he's like, I can't give you the car because it's a company car, but I'll let you borrow my pickup truck. And so Stephen's like, sure. So he loans him this bright yellow Dodge Dakota Sport Quad pickup. So he's on the lamb in a bright yellow pickup. (laughs) So then Steven calls his sister Kelly and Kelly is taking care of the children at this point. And he tells her that he wants to come over to drop off the dog, but Kelly's at a fish fry at her church. So he's like, can I come to the church and get your keys because I need to drop off the dog? And she's like, sure. And he gets there and he's like, I love that he's just like having everyone else take care of all of his shit. Like, you're going to drop off the dog now too? Of course. He's going to offload that into someone else. So ridiculous. So he he does that. But he also, while he's at the church, he switches cell phones with Kelly. He's like, the cops are up my ass. They're recording my phone calls. Like, I need to use your phone. So they switch cell phones at that point. He then goes to Kelly's looking for a gun to kill himself with. Basically, as soon as they showed up on his doorstep, he knew he was totally boned. So he's yeah, like, because her torso is in his garage. Yes, because of that. <laughs> because of that very big, important reason. Yes. So he's thinking suicide's the only option at this point. Like he doesn't want to go to jail. He wants to kill himself. So he doesn't find the gun. So he goes through Kelly's house and instead he takes a bottle of Vicodin. He takes a bottle of Adderall as well as some migraine medicine and Benadryl, thinking that he might be able to overdose potentially. Ugh, that's such an easy way out for him. That's not fair. Of course, of course. But this is a guy who's been taking the easy way out his whole life. So it's not a shocker here. He starts driving in a panic 
And he decides to head up to this cabin in the Wilderness State Park that he used to go with Tara in happier times. So he thinks that it's like poetic and full circle if he goes to this vacation cabin they used to go to together and kills himself. Yeah, because he chooses to kill himself. She didn't choose to die. Yeah, pretty different there, bucko. Now, also, there's a friggin' blizzard, full-on Michigan blizzard going on outside. And he stops and buys some Jack Daniels and Baileys and is now driving and drinking and popping Vikes. Wow. Yeah. So meanwhile, the police are looking everywhere. They're checking out all of the local Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> They're going to gas stations. <laughs> like literally cause tells Tom Henderson. He's like, I immediately ran down to the Buffalo Wild Wings and thought I'd just find him at the bar. <laughs> and then finally they talk to Kelly and she says that she saw her brother last driving a white pickup for some reason. So this kind of actually throws them off for a little while until they tracked down the guy who actually lent him the truck. And the guy was like, no, my pickup's yellow. Was she colorblind or was she complicit? They kind of hint that she was complicit. They don't, there's no real evidence. We can't say for sure, but okay, it seems pretty hard to mistake bright yellow for white. Yeah. Unless you're colorblind. Yeah. And they did not say she was colorblind. So (laughs) yeah. So they're currently at this point in the search looking for a white truck and they're trying to track down the friend and they later do get in touch with him. They also call Tara's sister, Alicia, and her husband, Eric. And they also call, you know, Tara and Alicia's parents. And they set up hotel rooms for them, um, like in Washington Township, for two reasons. One, they need to tell the family that Tara is dead because now it is confirmed, sadly. And they want to do it in person. But also, too, they have their daughter and sister's killer out on the loose. Like, what if he wants to kill the whole family? Yeah. So they're like, we want to get you in town, stay in a hotel, get you safe, you know? And they do the same thing with the ex-girlfriend, the one who went to them and gave them the emails. They tell her, too, and they're like, go stay with somebody because he could be coming for you, you know? Wow, that's so scary. Also, going back to that creepy feeling that the au pair, the other au pair had, when they're searching the house, they find a peephole. Ew. Yeah, they find it. So basically the master bedroom closet abuts the au pair's bedroom and he managed to like carve a little peephole in and was staring at them while they undressed. Ew. Ew. I know that's not even a nanny cam. There, that that is vintage right there. That's super vintage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ew, Ew. is that gross? And they had so many au pairs. Think about that. Yeah, that's nasty. So nasty. I feel like I would like to think that I would be able to see a peephole. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know exactly how it went down. There was something about drywall. I, I, I'm not buildery, so I didn't really quite know how it looks, but. Suffice to say, it was there. Yeah. Meanwhile, also, the sheriff comes down to the scene, and he's inspecting the body, and he notices that there's twigs and dirt on the torso, and he's like, you know what? I think that bastard did dump her body in Stony Creek, and then when we did our press conference, he went back and got it. Yep. So he's like, you know what? Let's go back, and let's go to near where she found the Ziploc bag. And look for everything. Let's like do a really crazy search. So he orders that search to happen the next morning starting at 9 a.m. So back on the run with old Steve over here, he just keeps 
thinking of ways to kill himself. So he stops at a Myers department store and he buys razor blades and sleeping pills. And like later when he talks to the cops, he's like aghast that they didn't like alert anyone or ask him if he was okay because he was buying razor blade and, and sleeping pills. He's like, what's the world coming to that you could buy those things and nobody even checks in on you? What a psycho. Sir, you have your wife's torso in your garage. I don't think you can talk about what the world is coming to over here. What is the world coming to? Also, sometimes you just need new razors and sleeping pills. Yeah. Like, I'm sure at some point I bought Unisom and razor blades at the same time. <laughs> Nobody was like, honey, are you okay? Yeah. No, it's not their responsibility. No, I'm just a hairy insomniac. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so, my God. After several more miles and swigs from the whiskey bottle, he's like, I don't even know if I could kill myself because he always takes the easy way out. He then goes into another Myers and he buys a cap gun and covers the red part with black Sharpie so that he thinks when they find him, he can do suicide by cop. Oh, my God. And then ruin somebody else's life. Like, that's so cowardly. Like, if you do that, like, you're putting that on a human being forever for the rest of their life. That, they that is perform. beyond. So at 6 a.m. the next morning, he's still on the road and he stops to buy newspapers because he wants to see if he's in the newspaper. Like, he's like, is there anything about me? Is there anything about What a narcissist. Yep. He's like listening to the radio for information about himself. But they don't really have – no one's reporting it. They're keeping it pretty sealed up at Good. this point as best they can. So this is an odyssey that at some point causes him to get lost in an oil field. At one point, he's on a Coast Guard military base, and he's, like, getting lost. He's driving through the snow. At one point, he passes out on the side of the road because he's been drinking and popping Vicodin. All that Bailey's, you know? <laughs> Bailey's got to go somewhere. When he wakes up, he writes kind of like a suicide note to his kids that would later be entered into evidence. It reads, Lindsay and Ian, I know that you two don't understand yet what has happened to mom and I. When you get a little older, Aunt Kelly can explain better. For now, though, just know that I love you both more than anything in the world. Because I don't want to put anyone through more suffering, I have decided to end my life. I know that it hurts to lose me now after mom got taken from you. Mom got taken from you. Excuse me. Just not having any responsibility. Yep. But it is better. Now, no one has to go through what happened between mom and I over the past few years. Things kept getting worse and worse between us, ending up with a physical fight where I hit mom and she ended up hurt very badly. Wow. Mm -hmm. I was afraid of losing you two, so I ended mom's life in a panic. I am sorry. Psycho. Yep, so they find this later. At 2.30 p.m. on Saturday, he makes it to the Wilderness State Park, and he sets out to run five miles in a blizzard to get to this cabin. And he's not wearing any, like, winter gear. He's in clogs, number one. Wait, and wait, 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 wait. What type of a clog? I have to look up what type of a clog it was, but they said they were, like, fashionable clogs. I don't know. It wasn't like something I'd heard of. It wasn't like a dance go or a croc. It a, was just, I doubt it being fashionable. It's very hard to have fashionable clogs. And I like a clog. I'm all for a clog, but I wouldn't describe them as fashionable. Especially anything in 2007 in Michigan. Yeah. 
No. On a dude. On a dude, yeah. So by now, Stephen has made a couple calls. He told his sister Kelly that he was going to kill himself at the Wagashant's cabin in the Wilderness State Park. So Kelly's obviously alarmed, and she notifies the police who notify officers up there to start a manhunt. During Mr. Grant's wild ride, he is also <sighs> called and confessed to Verena. So he told her. So around 8 p.m. on Friday night, 2 a.m. in Germany, Stephen had called Verena to ask her to say goodbye to his kids for him and to say goodbye to her. He told Verena that he and Tara had gotten into a fight and he had accidentally killed her. So Verena is hysterical. She doesn't know what to make of this phone call. And then she calls the police, which is the right thing to do. But she's like, just cannot believe it. She keeps saying, I believed him. I believed him. Like she believed that he didn't hurt his wife. She believed that they were going to be breaking up. She believed everything he told her. And now she's totally shook because he's clearly a liar and a murderer. Exactly. You know? Yep. And at first she's very reticent to admit that they had a relationship. She keeps saying it was romantic, but it wasn't physical. It was, then she's like, it's kind of that thing where somebody's lying to you and you can tell it's just because they don't want to admit it completely. And then details keep coming out. Okay, well, we did this, but we didn't do that. We cuddled, but we didn't have sex. Okay, we had oral sex, but we didn't have sex. You yeah, know? yep, 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 yep. <laughs> And at 9.30 a.m. on Saturday, 90 searchers on foot, three cadaver dogs, and two tracking dogs re-canvas Stony Brook. So this is all going on. Like, he's on the lam. They're researching the park. And only 90 minutes into this search, they find her body parts. Whoa. Near where the Ziploc was. So at first, Tara's thigh was found. And then they, as they kept searching through the trees, the scene became one, like, a horror movie. One of the officers said parts were coming from everywhere. It was like a Halloween movie. Oh no. It was just, Tara was such a lovely person, such a hard worker, such a high achiever, somebody who loved her children, loved her family, really like worked her ass off in life to give her kids the best. And to have it end this way is just revolting and infuriating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how much do you hate this guy? I'm really upset that you showed me his picture on the cover of the book, to be honest. I know. He's got this, like, smugness to him, even with that bug-eyed look. Is that his um, mugshot? That's his mugshot, yeah. Yeah, so we'll definitely put that one up on the Instagram. So now they have a shit ton of evidence on Stephen Grant, obviously. Also, they have to... It's so sad. They do find Tara's head, and it's, like, jammed in a tree stump, and they have to ask... Tara's sister to identify it. What? Yeah. I, uh, it just makes me sick to my stomach thinking about poor Alicia having to do that. That's a job no one ever, ever, no. ever wants to do. No, you know? that's horrid. I can't, I can't think of anything worse that, that it's not even a body. Like it's pieces. Yeah. You know, no, that's not okay. Not okay. So they, at this point, have Tara's body, obviously. They know where he's going. They start doing the manhunt. By 10 p.m., they have Coast Guard helicopters with people wearing night vision goggles, like up there tracking Steven, as well as canine units and a ton of officers on foot. I mean, they're going tracking the clog marks. They're tracking the clog marks. Exactly. <laughs> they are. And he actually goes into detail about this. Even though there was a blizzard going on, it was a beautiful, big, bright full moon, which helped them actually 
see where he was going. For sure. And they could basically, the helicopters could tell the people on the ground where to go, which was super helpful. Now, I've mentioned that they're in a blizzard. This is northern Michigan blizzard. The winds are 35 miles per hour. It's 14 degrees outside. Yep. And with the wind chill, it's like way below zero feeling, you know? Don't act like I don't know what that's like just because I live in L.A. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you did your Midwestern winters. <laughs> and my boss did in Ohio. So you know what it's like. So it's bad. And by now, he's been running in the snow for hours. I hope that he has frostbite. Oh, so bad. So he has hypothermia. He's taken off his, you know, when you get hypothermia and you your body thinks you're hot. Yes. So yeah. he's taken off his jacket. He's taken off his shoes. The clogs are gone. I mean, he had to ditch them. You don't want to get your mug shot with those on, you know. <laughs> your fashion clogs. He has no hat. He has no gloves. He is just like out there. So he keeps like falling down because he's running in you know, knee-high snow. And eventually he just stays down one of those times. And he, as you do when you have hypothermia, he decides to go to sleep. But luckily, the helicopters and the ground crew can track him to where he is found underneath a tree. And they also, I guess at one point, he took off his watch. They found his watch. They're finding like these like breadcrumbs of his belongings while they're going on. And at 6.37 a.m. on Sunday, they discover him and he's alive. Because at this point, they're like, we don't know what we're going to find him, what kind of condition we're going to find him in. But he's barely conscious. And like I said, there's no protective winter clothes at all. His arms were covered with scratches and dried blood. His hands and feet were bone white, like chillingly white. And... He describes later like that he had been hallucinating while he was on this run, that he thought the trees were talking to him, that the trees were his his in-laws at this point. And so they're like, get on the ground. They cuff him. And then they're like, get up and let's go. And he can't walk. I mean, he has got fully frostbitten feet. So they're like dragging him, carrying him. They finally get him to a sled and they pull the sled behind a snowmobile to get him to a helicopter. And they put him in the helicopter and they airlift him to the hospital. And he later recalled the sensation of being rocked in the strong winds, getting closer and closer to this giant whirring helicopter, which is just so crazy. And also think about all the taxpayers' money that is going to hunting down this evil asshole. Seriously. Why didn't you do yourself a favor and, you know, everyone who lives in Michigan a favor and just turn yourself in? I mean, this they've had, think about the searches, everything that they've gone through, all of the man hours at this point, the helicopter, it's insane. Yeah, but he would never, you know? No, he's a selfish piece of shit. So they rush him to the hospital and he's discovered to have a temperature of 87.8 degrees. Whoa. Real low. And he just narrowly avoided needing to get his feet amputated. But the the doctors, I know he he gets to keep his feet and his hands. The doctor was really, really good. I wish it froze his dick off, though. Seriously. (laughs) Yeah. So while he's in the hospital getting treatment, his attorney, David Grimm, shocks the crap out of everyone when he announces to the press that he's dropping Stephen as a client. 
Yeah. So he declined to say why exactly he was quitting, only that it was, quote, a series of events over the last week that made it no longer possible to give him my everything as an attorney. Yeah, like a torso in the garage. <laughs> yeah, guilty as shit. I mean, maybe you don't want to represent a guy who's a liar and a murderer. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, so at this point, they're like, hoo-hoo-hoo, we have an opportunity. So the cops are like, he doesn't have an attorney on record right now. Yeah. So they can talk to him as long as they Mirandize him. They can totally talk to him and see if he wants to talk, you know? Okay. And it turns out when he wakes up, he does want to talk. He wants to sing like a motherfucking canary. And does he want a deal? No. The weirdest part about this is he he doesn't really advocate for himself for a deal. Like he thinks cooperating will get him a deal, but he doesn't make the deal before he talks. Yeah, because he's that entitled. That he thinks that he's just going to get a deal. Like he's gotten out of all those speeding tickets and all of those other mm-hmm. fucking things. He's, he's through done. all of the affairs or whatnot he's been yeah. up to. So after he's recovered enough to speak, Kaz and McLean tape themselves Mirandizing him on record. And they like really cross every T, dot every I, make sure he's on record being like, you are willingly talking to us. You know this can be used against you in a court of law. You know, yeah. like they are like making sure everything goes perfectly because they know what they have here. Yeah. So he does, he rolls with it for whatever egocentric reason he does this. And here's what he says happened that terrible night. Oh, God. So Stephen says that he's getting ready for bed in the nude, which is apparently how he sleeps, which is fine. I know that too, but he stays in the nude throughout this entire thing. What? When Tara comes home. So he's still naked and he comes downstairs. They exchange hellos. He says he carries her bag upstairs for her. Naked. Naked. And they're fine until she mentions that she might go back to Puerto Rico a day earlier than she was supposed to. And he says that a fight erupts at this point. Steven accuses Tara of sleeping with her boss and she slaps him and then he hits her back, punching her in the side of the neck. He says that she falls and bangs her head against the floor, but then she recovers and starts to try to leave. While she's like trying to get out, she's also like, that's it. I'm leaving you. I'm going to take everything. I'm going to go to the police and tell them that you assaulted me so you can't even get visitation. You're never going to see our kids again. And because she's like threatening to take away his children. Standing up for herself and their children. Yes. He wants to shut her up. So he grabs her by the throat and chokes the life out of her. He literally said in his confession, I just kept squeezing, 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 and I wouldn't let go. Wow. Yeah. At some point, he even pauses enough to put so like a gray shirt or something. He said he didn't know exactly what it was, like a, a towel or a shirt over her face so he didn't have to look at her while he was continuing to choke her. Oh, my God. Psycho. Psycho. So she sadly passes away, of course. So he starts to cry, and then he goes downstairs to text Farina because she was supposed to be coming home at some point, and he's like, hey, stay out a little longer because he's got his wife's corpse in their bedroom at this point. And then think about, this is like, some of these details, like how callous he is after he kills her is just chilling. He wrapped his belt around her neck and threw her over his shoulder. Like he did it so he could carry her easier. What? That doesn't. Yeah. 
So he does that to like hoist her over his shoulder and then he drags her down the stairs and her body is thumping on the steps. And he's telling this to the cops? He's just telling this story to the cops openly. They did say that one thing he asked before the confession started was he was like, you get less time if you can prove that it was a crime of passion and it wasn't premeditated, right? And they were like, yeah, for sure, you know? So I think he's trying to paint this murder as a fight gone wrong and hoping he'll get less time, you know? At that point, he drags her out of a side door and into the garage, and he then checks on the kids who appear mercifully to have their eyes closed and have slept through their mother's murder. But, like, he's doing all this in the nude, and he's doing it with his children in the house. Yeah, he's crazy. He then writes a note for Verena after the murder that says, you owe me a kiss, and places it on her bed. Wow. Unbelievable. He runs back to the garage where he struggles to get Tara's body in the back of her Azuzu trooper. At some point, the belt breaks and her body falls. And he describes to the cops the back of her head slamming into the concrete of the garage floor like dropping a watermelon hitting cement. What? Yeah, he's like, oh, it made this disgusting sound like, a watermelon being thrown on cement. Oh my God, that's nauseating. And he's just saying it with no emotion. Yeah. He's just reporting it like he's telling them a story. So he then covers her with what is described as a Jeep liner. I'm not really sure. I'm guessing it's some sort of like tarp type thing. Okay. And he just like leaves her in the trooper. He is doing that when he hears Verena's car pulling up. So then he runs upstairs, puts pajamas on, And then he runs back down the stairs as Verena comes in, pretending that he got into a fight with her and she left and that he thought she was coming back in. Yep. This is where his stupid plan is all coming together in his head and he thinks he's super smart right here. Then he goes to bed with Verena while his wife's body lays cold in her car in the family garage. Wow. Yeah. So Sunday morning, he takes Tara's body to his father's machine shop where he dismembers her using a hacksaw made from a bandsaw blade. It's basically like a custom homemade hacksaw made from a broken bandsaw blade. Okay. He places her into garbage bags and Rubbermaid bins that he brought from home. Meanwhile, he's like drinking whiskey while he's doing this. And he's like, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad to cut up my wife, apparently. Whoa. Like listening to music, drinking whiskey, dismembering his wife. These cops had to have been like, well, the worst part, too, is that they have to be all like, oh, yeah, man. Okay, cool. Like, they're, like, listening to him. Of and they course. have to stay, like, friendly to keep him talking. And, like, Kaz especially was like, I want to choke this guy out. I want to, like, I, I I have to pretend to be, like, buddy-buddy with this dirt bag when yep. all I want to do is just, like, kill him with my own hands listening yeah. to what he did to his wife. Yeah. The mother of his children, yeah. you know? I can't imagine being like, yeah, totally. Yeah, keep it going. Making jokes with him, you know? No. Gross. And he's also like, while he's dismembering her, he's leaving a couple of those voicemails, the one I told you about. And he's like, I'm so clever, ha, 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 leaving these voicemails. Like, they'll definitely think I think she's still alive, you know? Oh, my God. So that night at 3 a.m., he sneaks out of the house and using his children's plastic sled, he puts, like, all the body parts on the sled and then goes around like a sick Santa Claus, like, trying to hide all the body parts. Wow, this guy. Yeah. So he makes an attempt to bury the parts as best he can in the snow And then he places the plastic bags that the parts had been wrapped in in the Ziploc bag with his gloves and tosses it in the woods. And that would be what 
blew the whole case open. They're the gloves he wore. Gloves he wore while he was doing the dismemberment. Oh my God, what an idiot. And he's like not thinking about the fact that snow melts. Yeah. It's also, we're talking about February. So spring isn't too far away, you know, from happening here. We're not, this isn't happening in like November, you know? I mean, not that it would matter. It body wouldn't. parts body parts. No, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so after Sheriff Hackle made the announcement that they would search the park, he panicked and returned to grab the torso and place it back in the garbage bags and Rubbermaid bin. Just the torso. Just the torso. Apparently he like couldn't find the other parts or they were too buried or things were frozen over or predators had grabbed them. I'm not entirely sure. The only thing he could find was like, at this point, the snow had melted a little bit. So the torso was like just sticking out. Gross. So he had grabbed that and he kind of like just panicked and he's like, well, maybe they won't find the rest. And then he literally can't believe his luck when they don't find anything. I guess they just didn't search that, that area. Yeah. Yeah. However, as we know, that luck is short lived. And he also detailed his horror when confronted with the search warrant and then the hazy details of his flight up north. So around 10 p.m., they're all caught up and Grant just like casually is asking about Tara's body. He's so creepy. He's like, so uh, so what what parts have been found yet? Are you guys still looking for any pieces? Like, maybe I could help. Like, I want to be yeah, helpful. Like, I was I just going to say. You, uh, I could tell you maybe where they are. And they're like, um, okay, so we're still looking for like a foot and an arm. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're all in that area. Like, they're all like 25 yards from each other. So like, you, you just keep on the same area. You'll be fine. You'll find all the bits. Whoa. So, and they said he was just so casual and like friendly while he's saying this. And it's like blowing their mind. Because he thinks he's getting some sort of deal. He does. He thinks that like by being friendly and being like helpful that they're going to go easy on him, you know? So the autopsy confirms that Tara's cause of death was strangulation. And DNA confirms, of course, that the body parts do belong to Tara. And at this point, the family has been told and forced to identify Tara's remains. So they hold an absolutely heartbreaking press conference about the end of Tara's life. After Stephen is captured, social workers remove Lindsay and Ian from Kelly's care and give them over to the Standerfers, who's Alicia and Eric. Yeah. And they also have children in a similar age group. And this eventually sparks off a huge ongoing custody battle because Steven's sister Kelly wants the kids and Alicia, Tara's sister, wants the kids. But I'm like, sorry, I'm sorry, Kelly. Your brother's a murderer. You don't get to keep the children of the woman that your brother murdered. Yeah, she was potentially complicit too in like trying to let him get away. Exactly. Yeah, no. 100%. So yeah, definitely, definitely no. This goes on for a while. And in the book, it's really sad. And it's really hard for Alicia. But I just want want you to know, Andy, that it's okay. The Standerfers get the children. Okay. Thank goodness. Yes. It all works out (laughs) as best it can when somebody loses their mother. But fortunately, Alicia and Eric were very, very good, you know, step-in parents, you know. Wow. So we start moving towards the trial here, and there's already some outrage about some of the stuff that's going on. The first hullabaloo is over the fact that Grant requested a public defender, and instead of the next person in line to get a case, which is how they usually assign public defenders, they skipped over to a fairly famous trial attorney and gave him a second counsel as well. So people are like, wait, 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 that's not fair. Now, everybody who gets in trouble and wants a public defender is going to want two. Also, it's denying the public defender that was next in line from getting to make his name in a really well-known case. Yeah. 
you know, like he was the next in line. You're like screwing him by screwing over. And you're clearly giving Steven preference by giving him a really famous, well-known trial attorney yep. rather than, you know, a guy that's fresh out of law school yep. or woman. Yeah. So some people were like, we don't like that at all. But the judge who approved it made a really good point. Essentially, they were saying that if they don't give him an attorney that is versed in this type of trial and this type of media scrutiny that he could appeal later and say that he didn't have good representation. Yeah. Yeah. So if he doesn't have adequate representation, he can appeal and the whole case could get thrown out or he could get acquitted or, you know. And that's why he decided to do it. That's why he decided to do it and make sure that he had every resource he possibly could so that no one could go back and appeal this situation, you know? Yep. The hullabaloo number two is because the prosecutor, in response to a Freedom of Information Act request, had released Grant's full confession to the media. So before the trial or jury selection even begins, newspapers and TV shows are blaring the lurid details all over the place. Whoa. Yeah. And so people are like, well, that's a fuck up because now how is he going to get a fair trial when everybody knows exactly what he confessed to? Yeah. You'd have to find someone who like doesn't have a TV or listen to any Exactly. News. Yeah. Yeah. And the, but the prosecutor's like, and so a lot of people are like, that was bad on that prosecutor. But he's like, I was responding to a Freedom of Information Act request. I had to release it. Shit. Yeah. So before the trial even gets going, Stephen Grant also loses a $50 million wrongful death civil suit to the Standerfers. So they're like, they know they're not going to get $50 million from him. But the point of it was twofold. One, to make sure that none of Tara's money goes to representing him and helping him. Yep. And number two, he was already scheming while he was in prison on how he could try to make money off of his notoriety and fame. And so they want to make sure that if he ever somehow, even though you're not legally supposed to be able to profit from your crimes, if he somehow manages to, that they would get the money cool. because it okay. would be ordered well, to and them. Because hopefully Tara's kids would. Exactly. 100%. The kids would end up with the money. Yeah. So jury selection started on November 27th, 2007, narrowing a jury pool from 500 to roughly 120 before both sides were satisfied. It took nine whole days to do jury selection because so many people already hated Steven so much. Yeah. Yeah. They were getting like people that were like, an eye for an eye, kill him. And they're like, <laughs> okay, you're out. You're not going on the jury. <laughs> they're they're Why coming not? into jury selection with a pitchfork. <laughs> I'm sure the prosecutor would have liked that. The defense is like, no, 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 no. Not that yeah. person. Yep. So, yeah. So, and also the defense was having bad luck in general. Like, they tried to get the taped confession out, but the judge was like, sorry, it was all legally done. We need to hear it. They also tried to not allow Tara's autopsy photos to be entered because they're so horrific that they knew it would sway the jury. And the judge was also like, nope, they're in. Good luck, motherfuckers. Yeah, it's the truth. what happened. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, I don't want things that will make my client who's a murderer look like a murderer. It's like, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, it doesn't really work like that. They have to see the evidence. They have to hear the evidence, you know? So immediately the defense is clear, like right from their opening statement. They're not attempting to prove Stephen's innocence. Obviously, they can't. The recording is allowed in after all. 
they're just attempting to prove that it wasn't premeditated, that it was committed in an act of passion, thus qualifying the crime as manslaughter or murder in the second degree. But do you have to like, for that to be the case, would you have to have called the police sooner than five days after? I don't know. I don't know because we've had other cases where they've successfully got manslaughter and it happened much later, like the FBI case. Yeah. And he got manslaughter. Okay. But yeah, so that's what they're trying to go for. Naturally, the prosecution is going for premeditated first degree murder, which would carry a life without the possibility of parole. Mandatory sentence. And so manslaughter's max is 15 years. And he could possibly get life with second degree, but he'd absolutely get parole at some point. So they really want to push for an LWAP over here. Okay. So they have the loved ones of Tara testify as well as a hysterical, tearful, completely apologetic Verena. So she has to grossly go up on the stand and tell all of the details of his creepy seduction. And yeah, and it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's just... And everyone hates her, you know? Everyone's, like, thinking she's, like, this other woman, you know, who caused the murder because, like, if he wasn't having an affair with her, maybe he wouldn't have killed his wife. And it's like, no, this dirtbag would have eventually killed his wife because he's a dirtbag, you yeah. know? Yeah. Ugh. So the prosecutor, Eric Smith, even asked in his opening statement, have you ever wondered what goes through the mind of a man who just murdered his wife? And then he paused and answered himself, sex. Which is a, a good way to immediately get the jury to hate Stephen, huh? hmm Yeah. So Grant's defense attorney began his closing statement by saying, this is a pathetic individual, which I agree with you there, defense attorney, <laughs> but not one who had a pre-thought plan to kill Tara Grant. Who plans strangulation, he said. He stressed that without being 100% positively sure without being sure that the murder was premeditated, it would be unjust to deliver a first-degree murder decision. So he's like, if there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever, you cannot find him guilty of first-degree Yeah, no, it's that's like such good defense attorney. It is. I mean, it's a good point. If you have a question, you have to err on the lighter sentence, obviously. He's saying, I'm not Thank saying you, you do it. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. Nobody, it's free will. You could do whatever you want. Meanwhile... Prosecutor Eric Smith is pushing hard for first degree. He said in his closing statements, Tara Grant had no idea what she was walking into. He was lying in wait for her naked like a coiled snake. He wanted a new family, a new wife. The only thing that was in his way was Tara. With no conscience or speed limits, he executed his plan. So Henderson said the highlight of Smith's one-hour presentation was a bit of theater with a stopwatch. He started the watch, stared at its face, and after 15 seconds said, Tara Grant is now unconscious. He stared at the stopwatch for another three minutes and 45 seconds, which was the medical examiner's best guess at how long it took her to die. It seemed as if he'd been staring at the watch for 10 minutes. Tara Grant is now dead, he said. Stephen Grant had a choice between life and death. He chose death. Make him pay. Smith told them that under the law, even if an attack began in an unpremeditated fashion, if enough time passed to allow for conscious decision to cause death, the standard for first-degree murder was met. The long passage of time on his stopwatch, he said, made it clear that there was time for Grant to make sure his wife was dead or to stop things before they'd truly gone too far. 
He chose too far. He had the entire time to think she's alive. She's alive. She's alive. But he squeezed, said Smith. So immediately nine out of the 12 jurors voted to convict on first degree murder. However, the three holdouts, I guess there was particularly two of them that felt very strongly about this, did not feel that the prosecution had adequately proven premeditation. So after 15 hours of deliberation and arguing back and forth, the holdouts refused to cave. So eventually the jury compromised and delivered a verdict of second degree murder. This is clearly devastating to Tara's family. And me. And you. Yeah, so this is not great. But, I mean, it could be worse. He could have gotten manslaughter. There's still a chance that he could get life. There will just be some chance of parole, obviously. Ugh. Yeah, and I think it's the the possibility of parole that is particularly devastating to the family. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, Alicia said later, we thank God that a portion of this horrific nightmare is now complete with the conviction of my sister's murderer. Fighting the tears, she said her family would somehow recover, but perhaps not as easily now. With first degree, we could forget about him. Now, though, she said, she'd have to worry about one day having to confront the reality of her sister's killer out as a free man. She would, she said, do her best at sentencing to convince the judge to put him away for as long as possible. And she would, she promised, channel her anger into fighting domestic abuse. I promise you that I will be your voice, she told Tara. Oh, and she did. She was true to her word, which we'll talk about later. So this whole thing is happening over the holidays. And like all of this shit is bananas that happens between conviction and sentencing. First of all, Grant is caught on jail recordings bragging about his jailhouse celebrity and how the female inmates and guards supposedly want him. Like he's bragging to his sister about this. He's even caught exchanging notes with another incarcerated woman named Jennifer Kukla, who was convicted of one of the most horrific crimes I've ever heard of. Do you want to hear what Jennifer did to get in jail? Yeah. Okay, we are having a murder within a murder right here, guys, and it is brutal. So Jennifer Kukla was a 31-year-old single mother who worked at McDonald's and had two beautiful daughters, Alexandra, who's eight, and Ashley, who's only five. She later claimed that voices in her head told her that she needed to kill her babies to save them from pain later. Okay, I don't know if I want to hear it now. Oh, you're not going to like this. I'm sorry, but we're already rolling, so you got to stick with me here. So... One Sunday at 7.30 in the morning, she takes out a butcher knife and attacks her own children. Little Ashley took a cut to the chest and then hid under the kitchen table while brave Alexandra screamed, Mommy, don't do it, and tried to get her to not attack her little sister. Oh, my God. And then Jennifer just turned and slashed the eight-year-old through the neck so deep she nearly beheaded her. She then reached under the table like in a horror movie and dragged the five-year-old out and slashed her neck as well. As the two girls bled out, she disemboweled the family dog and her two puppies as well. Uh... She later said it was because she didn't want the dogs eating her daughter's corpses. Okay. And now this doesn't make any sense. She then went into her daughter's room where they had a pet mouse and took it out and snapped its tiny little neck as well. 
So she just went on a rampage. Okay. It's just befuddling. So I think it was like 11 hours after that. Yeah, 11 hours after that, Jennifer's sister stopped by. She was supposed to take her and the girls out to dinner. Oh, my God. And her kids were in the car. So she stepped up to the door and her sister came out and was like, I just killed the girls. I just murdered them. Could you imagine? I really can't. And so she freaked out because her her own children are in the car. So she's like now scared that she's going to hurt her kids. Yeah. So she just runs back to the car, locks the doors, drives off, drives like a half mile down the road, pulls over and calls 911. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And so when the cops pull up, Jennifer was just sitting on the front steps. She's smoking a cigarette. And she says to them, I'm waiting for a hearse, one made of bones to take me to hell. Oof, I just got chills. You gave yourself chills. I gave myself chills. Ugh. So anyway, this is the woman he's romancing in prison. Sounds about right. Yeah. In an October 1st, 2007 letter, he wrote, Hi, Jenny. It's been nice writing to you these last couple of months. I still laugh when I remember your one note. You asked, are you scared of me? Lol. You are too nice to be scared of. I just wish we could arrange a rendezvous in the closet one of these days. What? He's trying to get it in while he's behind bars and with the craziest woman. Wow. This just shows his character even more so, you know? Absolutely. So he's also recorded discussing the custody case with his sister, Kelly, telling her to tell the courts what a bitch Tara was, the two of them scheming to find a way to profit from the murder. Like they're talking about like how they can get a book deal and how- She can maybe get the money, like maybe he can't get the money, but she can be his manager and get 20% in like how they can make money off of this. And, you know, Alicia arranges for this like 5K walk that's going to benefit a local women's shelter. And they're like, he's like, oh, you should go, Kelly, and get a shirt and give it to me. It'd be hilarious and stuff. And they're just being completely callous about this. Wow. Yeah, it's like, it's really bad. They even joke about like, if all of her body parts made it into one casket or like, they're like, oh, do you think they had to do mini, mini caskets or something? Like they're like making jokes. It's gross. Yeah, Tom Henderson even wrote about a conversation that happened on March 21st when Kelly and their father, Al, visited. And Al, this was the singular one and only time he ever came to visit his son. Okay. And it was recorded and Steven said, dad, and Al said, I'm so sorry. And Steven said, hey, that's okay. Shit happens. And Tom Henderson wrote in italics, shit happens, question mark. Kozlowski apparently came out and said I was abusing Tara. Is that true? Kelly, yeah, everyone's been saying that, by the way. Turning Point, the abuse place, they did a vigil at Stony Creek and they all said that you were an abusive husband for years and years and years. And it culminated in the murder. Well, you should tell them it was the other way around. That's what you should have told them. Kelly said, well, I can't. I'm trying to get the kids. I can't bash the dead woman right now. Yeah, she was the most emotionally abusive bitch I'd ever met, but I can't really say that. She was the puppet master. I can't really say that right now. Then Steven says, people want my autograph. And Kelly says, well, you're famous. And Steven says, I had someone offer me a whole box of donuts for my wristband. A whole box of donuts? He thinks he's so fucking famous right now. It was Al's only visit to see his son. He cried at the funeral services for Tara. He cried when he visited his son. One wonders what he thought as he listened to his offspring. 
as he listened to their patter. A hint would come later in a sad, dramatic fashion. Wow. Even more horrifying than everything I just told you, which was horrifying, was that on Christmas Day, little Lindsay revealed to Alicia and Eric that she and Ian were actually awake when the murder happened and they witnessed part of it. Oh, my God. That is the worst thing you've ever said. They were terrified. Absolutely terrified. They were four and six. How do you even? Oh, my God. Yeah. And then they had to live with that monster for a couple weeks. Wow. Yeah. So it's, I mean, Alicia tells the police what they told her. And I think they do talk to it like a child psychologist. But everyone agrees that they would have never put the kids on the stand. So it's it doesn't matter no, that no, it no. came out afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, for our own purposes, knowing that detail makes it so much worse. It is, but it's also good that they told Alicia because they can start getting help. Yeah. So it's really smart for Lindsay to talk about it. It's such a hard thing to tell somebody. I mean, it just shows that they had a level of trust with Alicia, even though they didn't get to see them as much as they would have liked because the two families didn't get along, you know? Yeah. So in sentencing on February 21st, 2008, the prosecutor pushed for the absolute max sentence of 50 to 80 years, while the defense requested the much lighter 15 to 25 year sentence. Stop. Mm -hmm. All of Tara's loved ones made impassioned pleas for the max sentence, including Eric Standifer, who spoke about the trauma the children endured. Like he mentioned that they witnessed this to the sentencing judge, you know, and he talks about how they found out on Christmas Day. And in the book, they even talk about how he crossed out a sentence, but later tells the author what he was going to write about how Lindsay checked like her mother's eyelids to see if she was still warm and was like trying to figure out if her mother was still alive oh my god it's just devastating so well i think that the judge was inclined to agree with the prosecution and tara's family as she sentenced Stephen to the max of 50 to 80 years she also tacked on six to ten years for obstruction of justice and to add insult to injury a $180 fee to the state and to pay $41,663 in attorney's fees. Amazing. Yeah, she's like, screw you, dude. So shit sack Steven has appealed a couple of times, but every single time the courts are like, nope. (laughs) So he's not getting out of there anytime soon. Good. He's in the Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility in Ionia, Michigan, where he shall remain until 2057 to maybe 2087. The very earliest he could get parole would be 2057 when he would be 87 years old. Okay. Yeah, so he's he's not getting out of there alive. Also, really cute, Cause said if he, like, is alive and he is up for parole at 87, he's like, I'm going to bring my 80-year-old ass in there and be like, no, you can't let him out. He's like, I'll still be alive. I'll stay alive to keep that asshole in jail. Oh, my God, amazing. <laughs> yeah. So in sad news, and again, showing how murder radiates to affect so many more people than just the victim, Al Grant, Stephen's father, called the sheriff's department two days before Father's Day on the 13th of June in 2008. 
And when the operator asked him what's going on, he said that he wanted to report a suicide. When the operator asked him whose, he said mine. And he gave his own address and hung up. A deputy was sent out to the address. And as he got out of his car, he heard a gunshot. When he entered the home, he found Al Grant, who was 66 years old at the time, on the floor with a rifle. He was alive at the scene, but he died on the way to the hospital. Whoa. I wonder why he called that in. I think that's a really respectful thing to do so that, you know, a loved one didn't have to find him. At least it was a professional. I feel like that was like a courtesy move, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. So Sergeant McLean talked to Tom Henderson and she said it was so sad. Al was such a nice guy. Even when we were serving search warrants on him at his business, the second one he served, the second one we served, he said, do what you need to do. Take your time. I'll get out of your way. Call me when you're done. My heart went out to him. He was such a nice guy and to end up raising a psychopath. Alicia Standerfer stood true to her word and has been a vocal champion against domestic abuse since her sister's terrible murder. Alicia established an annual 5K walk called Tara's Walk that benefits Turning Point, a shelter for abused women. The 14th annual Tara's Walk will be held on September 25th, 2021. So it's still going. That's awesome. Really awesome. It's helped so many people so far in the last 14 years. A Detroit news article from September 2017 by Sarah Rehal shared that Lindsay and Ian are now thriving and they also switched their last name to Standerfer. Okay, great. My mom would be really proud of what's going on, Lindsay at the time 16 said to the Detroit News. She would not want her death to be unimportant. She would want people to understand that situations do happen and it unfortunately takes one person to lose their life for other people to get the courage to understand. Well, I think that's exceptionally poignant for a 16-year-old. And how proud Tara must be to look down on her children, don't you think? Oh, Jesse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the kids are doing really well, though. Um, That's great. Yeah. I'm really excited. Uh, We are going to put the details about Tara's walk in the description for this episode. And I have already made a $100 donation to this year's walk on behalf of Love That's Murder. Awesome. That's amazing. So I hope that you guys will join me. It's for such a great cause. And I'm also going to virtually run a 5K on September 25th so I can be in solidarity for Tara's walk on that day from Hudson Valley. I was going to say, if I'm somewhere, maybe I could come do it with you. Yeah, come do it with me. And also, you guys, I know it's kind of of ways off. If I had planned my content better, I would have planned for this to be closer to September 25th, but I was real deep by the time I figured this out. But if anyone wants to do it too, like tag at Love Murder Pod and Tara's Walk or something, and we'll send you a sticker if you do it as well. Like wherever you live, you know, run a 5K, make a small donation, whatever you can give, they'll take anything. So yeah, this is a, a truly sad case, just like, you know, a lot of the cases that we cover. Um, and this one definitely hit me to the core. What a wild story, huh? So sad. Yeah. So thanks everyone for listening today. If you liked this story, if you like this podcast, send us more stories, write us a review, let us know what you're thinking. We love, love, love to hear from you. In conclusion, if you're going to be a creepy, creep, 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 maybe don't tell strangers at Buffalo Wild Wings about it. Ew. Oh, God. Or 
document it in your murder moleskin that you read to the cops? Absolutely not, but murder moleskin should be uh, trademarked. I'm pretty sure that's a great idea for true crime lovers who like a quality notebook. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.